with me to pray. Father in heaven, as we come now to your word, I pray that you would open it to us. Uh, We confess that uh, while our fingers are nimble enough to open the pages of this book, uh, there are times when we resist listening. We resist the truth of it. And so I pray that you would overcome every bit of resistance in us. uh, That you would free us uh, from guilt because of the work of Christ we can be free and that you will enable us to hear it, apply it, appropriate it to our lives, that it would be transforming, it would bring, as it says, a reformation to our life. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open to Hebrews in chapter 9. Hebrews in chapter 9. I want to read verses 1 through 14. Hebrews chapter 9, please. Please hear the word of God. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table uh, the holy, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot speak uh, now in detail. The preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, this is, in fact, the first Sunday of Advent as we begin to consider uh, together in a very deliberate way, the coming of Christ. Obviously, we consider Christ every Sunday, thus we realize that he has come. But in this time of the year, we set it apart to think through together uh, and make preparations for our Christmas uh, celebration. We've already considered this Sunday, bring the Sunday we think about the prophets. We've considered that word from the prophet Jeremiah, where he announced the new covenant. And you know this by now, because we spent four Sundays talking about it from the end of Hebrews chapter 8. That in the new covenant is the great promise that God will 
put his law in our minds, write it on our hearts, that has changed the very inclination of our lives and attune us and attend us and enable us to embrace the law of God as being good and right and the desire of our hearts. And then he said that he would be our God and we would be his people. He would protect us, provide for us, save us, and we would look to him to define our lives and to direct us. In fact, he would be the very one in which we would find the joy, the delight of our very lives. He would be our God, we would be his people. And then he said there's something very personal about this new covenant, that each one in it, each one in Christ, each one because of Christ, would know the Lord, would know him. And all of this because he would be merciful with our iniquities and he would remember our sins no more. That's the guts of the new covenant. That's what Christ wrought, what he brought in his coming, what he achieved for us. And then we made a profession of faith using Isaiah chapter 53. And in that particular section, we come to realize how it is that Christ brought this new covenant, how it came in him. It came amazingly, not simply through his birth, but through his death, that he was the very one who would take our iniquities upon himself so that our debt for sin would be paid, so that we would be forgiven and freed then from the guilt of our sins. Now, I want today to take up this verse 14 in Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, The author of Hebrews writes, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish, to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The point being that it's through the blood of Christ that each, one, each one's conscience is purified or cleansed from dead works. And all of that then enabling us to serve, or really we could say worship, it's the same word there, serve or worship, the living God. And I read that and I begin to wonder, why is it that my and your conscience needs cleansing or purifying? And then, how is it that the blood of Christ can do that? And and even why is it that in the Old Covenant, it didn't happen? It wasn't sufficient to cleanse the conscience. And finally, I begin to wonder, how is it then that that once knowing that my conscience is cleansed by the blood of Christ, how is it that then I'm free, it seems, or able then to serve, to worship the living God because my conscience is cleansed from these dead works? Why is it now that I can turn from dead works to works that actually serve or are in worship of our living God. And, and very personally, you see. I mean, some of this, you know, this is... I'm very repetitive as a preacher. <laughs> the Bible is unbelievably repetitive. Um, and so some of this is, is, is sort of old hat conceptually, cognitively, but, but it is very personal to us. Think of your own conscience. What would it be like? And what is it like for it to be purified, to, for it to be cleansed? And, 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 and are you, am I, able to live 
in the clean, with a cleansed conscience because of the truth of the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, does it really work for me? I mean, is it really applicable to me? Does, did it really, does it really bring that? And, and, and do I realize that the works that I had done prior to coming to faith, prior to having a cleansed conscience, that those works that I did were dead, but now to think that my very life, my whole life, not just bits and pieces of it, but my, my whole life can be lived in such a way to serve in worship the living God. I mean, think about that. So this is something we do on Sundays. This is something that permeates the very existence, the very core of our lives. So, so let's walk through this following uh, the author of Hebrews. It shouldn't surprise us that someone writing to a group called Hebrews would always go back to ancient Israel, always go back to what he calls, what we call, the Old Covenant, this covenant made with the people of Israel through Moses. And he begins to detail their worship, begins to detail their life uh, in the presence of God. Uh, and, and it is very detailed. I mean, to think about being uh, in that covenant and living in those days, you would realize your whole day from beginning to end would be filled with thoughts of God from what you ate to how you washed. Everything external to your, to your life would be concentrated upon him. And there, in ancient Israel, back in the days of Moses, uh, right in the center of the camp would be this big curtained structure Within it, very technically, the tabernacle. And in this big tented structure, there would be an outer courtyard. And, and you would understand as a worshiper, you could go there and meet with the priests. And you could take animals and pigeons there, if need be. Sacrifices, bread and so forth. Sacrifices to that place. Because in that outer courtyard would be an altar of burnt offering. And then closer to this other enclosure would be this, this laver, this basin of water. And you would know that in order to enter, that would be entering the very presence of God. You must come with this, this sacrifice. And, and then in this inter-enclosure, this tented area, not only curtained around, but tented over the top, was, was, was really two tents or two rooms, if you will. The whole thing of it was about 45 feet long, by about 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. So just sort of imagine that. This room is about 90 by 60, so you can sort of get some sort of sense of what 45 by 15, I suppose, might be. In the midst of that 15 feet high walls, these are a little, these are 20-ish. And so you get a sense of what that might be there. And in that, it would, since it was enclosed, it would be completely dark. Except that in the first room, was this gold lampstand that had seven branches on it. It was filled with oil, and it would be burning all the time. And there was a table opposite it, and on that table were 12 loaves of bread, interestingly. One, it seems, for each of the tribes of Israel. And then up against the, the western side of this particular room would be another curtain. And, and right up against that curtain was another altar, an altar of incense. And this incense would be burning all the time, with the sense, no pun intended, that it would permeate into this other room behind the curtain, so much so that that, that altar of incense was, was very much associated with that 
deeper room, that next room in, which was called the Holy of Holies. And in that room, in the Holy of Holies, was a box. Not a very big box, a few feet by a few feet. Just a box. It was gold inside and outside. And the very top of it was overlaid with gold, and it had a particular name of great importance called the Mercy Seat, because that was where the very mercy of God would be dispensed. And above it were two carved, molded uh, angels, cherubim. Very significant because the Bible says that God dwelt between those cherubim. God's very dwelling place right there in the Holy of Holies. And inside that box was the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, reminding them that God was the very one who would rule them righteously. There was a jar of manna in that room that would remind them that God had miraculously provided for them this provision. The the rod of Aaron was there. And and the author of Hebrews mentions that that's the rod that budded. And it budded at a time when God was affirming and confirming that it was the Levites who were to be the priests. Because you see, it was only those priests who could enter that tabernacle, both the outer room and the inner room, both the holy place and the most holy place. All the people could enter into the outer courts where the burnt offering uh, altar was, but that's as far as they could go. From there, the priests would have to represent them all the way through. And the author of Hebrews mentions one very, very significant day of worship. Just one day a year, think of it. One out of 365, just one day a year. And on that particular day, only the high priest himself, not the other priests, certainly not the people, but only the high priest, one person, the high priest, would enter into that little room called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of God was, where the very dwelling place of God was, where, 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 where the mercy seat was. He could enter that particular room, you see. But he had to, he had to go through a tremendous rituals to get there. He had to change his clothes. He had to bathe. He had to, to wash so that he would appear as if you needed to be clean in order to enter into this place. He would have to bring a sacrifice for himself, for his own sins. He had sinned against God and in order to enter into the presence of God. It was clear that, that since the wages of sin is death, something must die in God's graciousness. He wouldn't take the life of that priest, but he says, if you're going to represent the people, your sins must be forgiven if you're going to come into my place. And then on that particular day, it would take two goats, you remember, and, and after he had made sacrifice for himself, he would take the one goat and he would kill it. He would take its blood and sprinkle it on the altar. And he would, I'm sorry, he would take its blood and walk all the way into this most holy place and sprinkle it on the ark, the mercy seat, the seat where God's wrath is said to be satisfied so the sins of the people would be forgiven. And then he would come out. And in front of all the people, he would take that second goat and he would lean against it and he would confess all the sins of the people on it. And then somebody would take that goat completely away as if, as if their sins were just leaving, as if their sins were, were, and their guilt was just being taken away, out of sight. And you, get, you would get a sense, I do anyway, when I read about this in the Old Testament, that there's a collective sigh of relief at that moment. Whew. Our sins are forgiven. But the author of Hebrews says, very interestingly, in verses 8 through 10, this. He says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. He's saying, listen, as long as the first section, this holy place, 
the, only the priest can enter before they go, the high priest goes into the most holy place, as long as that's still standing in the sense that you're still dependent upon it. And the Holy Spirit says there's no way into the presence of God for you. It says, by this Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is, is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. He says, all of this is symbolic for their time then, our time now, that it's pointing to this time after which Christ has come. Then he writes, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but can only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation, or what some of you have in your versions, until the time of the new order, until everything then is made straight. This new time. And that's the time that Christ brings. Now why is it that all of that ritual that would take place why is it that none of that could cleanse the conscience of the worshiper? What's your conscience, anyway? I mean, it's that, that capacity that we have, that ability that we have to be reflective, uh, to think back upon the decisions we've made, the choices that we've made, the words we've said, the actions we've taken, uh, the, the, the characteristics of our lives. We're able to think back upon those. And our conscience seems to be that capacity which we have in being reflective and even judicial, that is. We're able to reflect back and analyze and say this was good and this was bad. And not only that, in that analysis... There's something in us, because of this conscience, that says that if I've done something bad, I must suffer. If I've done something bad, I must pay. If I've done something wrong, then, then, then I must make that right in some sense. That's this conscience that human beings uh, seem to have. Now, the danger with that conscience, of course is that it, contrary, of course, to the great philosopher and moralist, Jiminy Cricket, uh, is not always our best guide. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes of those who are such liars, he says, that their conscience is, is seared, is burned. It, it's, just, it's no longer able to, to say lying is wrong. And so they just continually lie with no sense that that's wrong, with no sense they should suffer about that. It's possible to live such a life that, that your conscience is no longer a good guide for you. He writes to Timothy, the apostle, I'm sorry, Titus, the apostle Paul does, and he says there are some whose consciences are defiled, that is, are just evil. And so they've declared that which is evil, good, and that which is good, evil. And so when they do evil, their conscience is clear. You can see that if you read the biographies of great uh, despots throughout history, great ones who have committed horrible crimes against humanity, they often die with a clear conscience. They really don't regret what they have done. Because they're so convinced that what they've done is right. And so our conscience isn't always the best Guide, the scripture says that we suppress the truth 
Because the only good conscience is one that's informed by the Word of God, informed by God himself. But even with all of that, still there seems to be within human beings a sense of right and wrong and a sense that if we do that which is wrong, there should be something suffered. For instance, in Romans in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes this. He writes, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law that is the law of God. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now, not written in the same sense that Jeremiah says the law will be written on our hearts in the New Covenant, because that's an inclination to love it and to obey it. But he said there is a sense of of right and wrong that's written on people's hearts uh, that's from God. It's just in in the nature of humanity. Yes, that image of God has been, been broken, but there's still some semblance of it there. Oh, it can be twisted and skewed. You see, the the real law of God says that we should love all that God loves and hate all that God hates. That we should that 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 which honors God is right and that which dishonors God is wrong. Uh, In us, it gets a bit skewed. I mean, there's still justice in us, but but rather than justice meaning that which dishonors God is wrong and that which honors Him is right that injustice is dishonoring God and justice is honoring God, we, we, we tend to turn that around to say that injustice means you've done something against me. And justice means you've done something right towards me. So it's a bit skewed. But still there's this sense of justice in us. There's a sense still of love in us, that love is right and love is good. Even among thieves they say there's honor. It's skewed. Love should be that we should love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And out of that and because of that, we should love others. But love means generally that uh, you do what's kind and good to me, and I think that's really good. And that means you love me, and I really appreciate that. And when you do something against me, that isn't love. But still, there's this sense of loveliness. There's this sense of right and wrong. There's this sense that if we go against conscience that we should suffer. And you see, that's in the conscience of human beings. And it's most acute for those who are around the things of God. It's most acute. Um, there are people who come to church and they complain. All I hear about is sin. And they say, well, listen to both halves, first of all, of the sermon. Yes, you do hear about sin, but there's something else you should be hearing. But if you're not hearing that, I wonder why. It may be that you're still living in the midst of that sin, in the midst of that guilt. So be careful and and, and cautious and to think that through. Because you see, for people who are around the things of God, there is this understanding of our inherent guilt before Him. We can't miss it. In fact, for the people in ancient Israel, that was in front of them all the time because of this big tent that lived right in the middle of them. And it said all the time that God is holy. And because He's holy and we're not, He's covered. He's in this little room that nobody gets to go in except once a year. And that with only very deliberate preparation. And just walk yourself through first that, that outer court there. What's it saying to you? It's saying, if you're going to approach God, 
something must die. And really it should be you because of your sin. But God in his graciousness is willing to take a substitute. For you to approach God, you must be pure. But, but, but you can't be pure. You aren't pure. So God will set up a representative who he will count as pure on your behalf. This priest. And he'll go through all these rituals every day in order to have a semblance of at least external, visible purity before God to say you've got to be pure to enter into the presence of God and so you see as you walk into this outer court there's this altar of burnt sacrifice if you're going to approach me something must die he takes the blood puts the animal and sprinkles it on the altar to satisfy for your sins then he takes this animal and he burns it up and it, and it sort of goes up to God and God says okay I'll take that and then just beyond that altar of burnt sacrifices, this big basin of water. You've got to be pure if you're going to go into the next stage and you realize, but I can't. I'm just stuck here. Some priest guy is going to go in there for me. And so he gets all washed up and goes in. And there he takes care of the lamp and keeps the light lit so all can be seen. He, he takes care of the bread so that, so that we understand that God nourishes us. But I never get any of it. Just the priests get it. And then he burns this incense, which is to be my prayers to God. But I don't see that happen. He tells me it does, but I don't see that happen. And presumably that incense goes into that inner room all the time where God dwells. I don't know. I've never seen the inside of that room. There's just one guy who gets to see the inside of that room, and that's only on one day. And He's got to go through all this elaborate preparation. He's got to go through this whole system in order to get there. And he gets there and he can't even stay. We don't know what happens those other 364 and three quarters days a year when he's not there. And I sit back here and I look at all that. And I keep thinking, if I'm forgiven, and, and, and I am, I, there's a sense in me that says, I'm forgiven, why can't I just be in the presence of God. And God says, well, that was just a symbol. I'm just preparing for my own coming. They say, didn't anybody in the Old Testament have any sense of a cleansed conscience? And, and the answer is, yes, they did. But it was by faith, trusting that something was going to come that was going to fulfill all of that. And they would pray to God as David did in, in Psalm 51 that God would create in him a pure heart, a clean heart and renew a right spirit within him. He would wash him clean. But, but then David goes on and he says, I know this doesn't happen because of bulls and goats. That's just a symbol of a reality that must come. Well, then Jesus comes, you see, in this new reformation. And the great news about Jesus coming in this new reformation is that He's like all of that because it's symbolized, it pointed to him, but, but he's, he's different. He isn't an animal, he's not a goat, he's a human being, and thus he's worth us. You know, the blood of that goat's just the blood of a goat, and I don't know how affectionate you are towards goats, but, but, but a goat isn't worth what a person is worth. It just isn't. There's a goat and a person uh, in the middle of the road, and, and, and you have to swerve, and you know you're going to hit one uh, I guess depending on who the person is, you'd, you'd swerve and hit the goat. Um, 
But, but you know the point, you see. And, and so there's all this, all this symbolism, but it, but it lacks the reality. But then a person comes, and his blood is worth us. His life is worth us, because he's a human being. And not only is he just a human being, he's God in the flesh, which means he's not just worth one, he's worth us all. And his sacrifice is worth And there's a sense in which he goes through the whole gauntlet of that big tent. It's Jesus upon whom our sin is put. It's his blood that is shed and sprinkled to the altar. It's his body that's burned, if you will. And the smoke ascends to his father and he says... And it's through him that cleansing comes. And he's the very light and the very sustenance. And it's through him that we go into the very holy of holies through the incense. And it's his blood that is to his Father to be received. Sins forgiven. It's all of that. The conscience, you see, cleansed. Why? Because while my conscience accuses me of all my sins and tells me that I'm guilty. And you know what? It's right. But then I see Jesus. And what he says is, when your conscience says that you should suffer for your sins, understand I already have. Therefore, you needn't. In fact, therefore, you mustn't. So the guilt is free. And there's a tremendous blessing in a cleansed conscience. There's a tremendous blessing in a pure conscience. Because you see, when the conscience is pure before God, we realize, I can, I can stand in His presence. I can be right there. He hasn't anything against me. Something says, but He should. And I go, I know He should. But He doesn't. And He doesn't because of Jesus. Because He's the one who took it. And He's the one who did it. Not some goat. Not some priest that I go shopping with at the grocery store. But Jesus did it. The very Son of God. He went all the way through and the Father accepted Him. So my, my guilt is gone away. My sin is atoned for. And you know what that does? That frees us from dead works. Why do people with guilty consciences do good things? Why do people who have guilty consciences. Why does a person with a guilty conscience do that which is good? A couple of reasons. One is, out of fear. The fear is, if I don't do good things, I know what's going to happen to me. I'm going to suffer. I mean, my conscience keeps reminding me of that. And, and thus, if our conscience is guilty, we know that unless I do good things, unless I do these right things, then I'm going to suffer. So I do good things so that I won't suffer. Or it may well be that a person with a guilty conscience does good things out of pride. That is, I'm going to prove that I'm not as bad as my conscience says that I am. Doggone it. <laughs> And so your conscience accuses you and you say, remember that good thing I did just the other day. Remember that nice thing I said just the other day. I'm not worthy of all this guilt. I'm not worthy of all this condemnation. I'm not worried of all this, worthy of all this accusation. I really am good and I've proved it because at Christmas and Thanksgiving I give 
presents and turkey and stuff, and I'm so good. That's why Americans love these holidays. Because, with a guilty conscience, there's a couple of days a year that we can do nice things and prove that we really are better than our conscience says. And, and it just because our consciences are relatively seared, it generally takes from January until November in order to convict us again. <laughs> By that time, we go, oh yes, I'll give a turkey to the Salvation Army. And then we think, maybe a turkey wasn't enough. Oh good, Christmas is here. And then I'll, I'll give gifts to the children. <sighs> and then I get a sense of cleansing, you see. But this is dead. This is dead. It doesn't really do it. Because deep down, I know that though I may have done a few things that look pretty good, still there are those other things I can't seem to make up for. And then I try to do good, and I puff my chest and say, I really am good, and yet it still doesn't seem to satisfy. So I have to suppress and suppress and suppress and fight and fight and fight that and create a system that says, no, I really am all right in order to survive. And God says, listen, just dump it. All right? Understand what Jesus really did and believe in Him and the guilt is gone. So then, when your conscience accuses you, you can say, on the one hand, I agree. I'm worthy of death. I'm worthy of condemnation. I'm worthy of that suffering. But on the other hand, Jesus has done it. Do you remember Isaiah? He sees God. Isaiah chapter 6. He sees God high and lifted up. It's an, it's an amazing vision. Sometimes I would love to see it, but then I realize if I did, it would scare me tremendously. You see this vision of God, you see, as Isaiah saw him high and lifted up. since the train of his robe filled the temple. It was huge. And everything shook, and there were angels around him singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Heaven and earth is full of his glory. Isaiah, you remember, saw himself in reflection to all of that. And in seeing himself in reflection to all of that, realized his own guilt at that point. His conscience condemned him. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And yet, my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. In a sense, he's saying, I'm going to die. And and, and, and he did feel that way. He says, says, I'm coming undone. Everything in me is about to implode. My my, my joints feel as if they're separating. My body feels like it's, it's just going to go up in flames. Because he said, I'm a man of unclean lips, meaning everything that comes out of me is unclean. I realize that now. And if that is true, and I'm standing before a holy God, then I'm going to suffer. And he falls down on the ground, you remember. And, and God instructs an angel to take uh, a coal with tongs from this altar, that there, this burning altar that's there. And he brings it to Isaiah, and he touches his lips. Cleanses him. And the word from God is this. Now your guilt has gone away. And I don't know that Isaiah is putting all this together at the moment, but in reflection, I bet he's thinking this goat is leaving the camp that has my sins. It's gone away. It's going to be remembered no more. He's putting it behind his back. He's blotting it out. He's putting it at the depths of the sea. He's taking it as far as the east is from the west. Your guilt is removed because for, your sin is atoned for. 
And that, you see, is true for us because of Jesus. Let me ask you to close your eyes. I'll have you open them in a minute. And this isn't a trick. This isn't manipulation. If you don't want to close your eyes, don't. I just want you to think about something without being distracted. Okay? Picture something in your mind. And a few of you already have your eyes closed anyway, so I figure... Not that you should feel guilty for that. Just, just think. Picture, if you can, that big tent and working your way through it. You're just a worshiper. You're not a priest. And you know because your conscience tells you that God is holy and you are not. That you deserve to suffer because of your guilt, your sin before Him. And there's something in you say, oh, if only that could be removed. And you know the process, you know the drill, you know you take the animal to the priest, he kills it, he takes the blood, you watch him, he throws it on the, on the, on the altar and, and burns it, the carcass up, the meat up. And you say, okay, God accepts that. You watch the priest wash himself at the basin. And then he goes into this other room. And you leave. And then on that one special day, even all that that takes place, there's those two goats and the one he kills and takes it in and you know this time he's going all the way through. The incense is going to burn and permeate right through the curtain into the Holy of Holies and he's going to take that blood and put it there but, but you're still outside. Now think of Jesus on the cross. Do you remember what happened as Jesus died when he died? Not what happened on the cross, he died there what happened in the temple, which was the permanent tabernacle. There was a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. And when Jesus died, you know what happened? That curtain ripped from top to bottom as if God himself were just opening it up. And there's a sense in which he was saying, in Jesus, come in. Your guilt is gone. Your sins atoned for. Okay, open your eyes. Let me read your story. An account from a man named Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was a uh, was a preacher in England in the 19th century. He didn't start out to be a preacher. He went to Cambridge uh, as a student. And in those days, every student at Cambridge had to take communion on Easter Sunday. And this was very troubling to Charles Simeon because he knew he wasn't a believer. And he knew that to take communion, he really should be a believer. And so it was very conflicting to him. And he wasn't really against being a believer. He just knew he wasn't a believer. So this is the account of the moment. He said, It was but the third day after my arrival to Cambridge that I understood that I should be expected in the space of about three weeks to attend the Lord's Supper. What, I said, must I attend? On being informed that I must, the thought rushed into my mind that Satan himself was as fit to attend as I. 
and that if I must attend, I must prepare for my attendance there without a moment's loss of time. I bought The Whole Duty of Man, a book, the only religious book that I'd ever heard of, and began to read it with great diligence, at the same time calling my ways to remembrance and crying to God for mercy. So, and so earnest was I in these exercises that within three weeks I made myself quite ill with reading, fasting, and prayer. The first book, which I got to instruct me in reference to the Lord's Supper, for I knew that on Easter Sunday I must receive it, was Kittowell on the Sacrament. But I remember that it was required more of me than I should bear, and therefore I procured Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, which seemed to be more moderate in its requirements. I continued with unabated earnestness to search out and mourn over the numberless iniquities of my former life, and so greatly was my mind oppressed with the weights of them that I frequently looked upon the dogs with envy, wishing, if it were possible, that I could be blessed with their mortality and they be cursed with my immortality in my stead. I set myself immediately to undo all the former sins as far as I could and did it in some instances which required great self-denial, though I do not think it quite expedient to record them, but having done it, has been a comfort to me even to this very hour inasmuch as it gives me reason to hope that my repentance was genuine. But you see, all of those were dead works. He knew he had to go to communion. He knew he had to be worthy to come into the presence of God. And so he said, if only I can undo all that I've done. So with great self-denial. My distress of mind continued for about three weeks, and well might it have continued for years, since my sins were more in number than the hairs of my head. But God, in infinite condescension, began at last to smile upon me and to give me a hope of acceptance with him. But in Passion Week, as I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, I met with an expression to this effect, that the Jews knew what they did, and they transferred their sin to the head of their offering, that is, on the Day of Atonement and in other offerings. The thought came into my mind, what? May I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus, and on the Wednesday began to have hope of his mercy. And on the Thursday, that hope increased, and on the Friday and Saturday became more strong. And on the Sunday morning, Easter day, April 4, I awoke early with those words upon my hearts and lips, Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. For that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior. I remember that on that, that, on that occasion that being more bread consecrated than was sufficient for the communicants, the clergyman gave us a piece more of it after the service. And on my putting it to my mouth, I covered my face with my hand and prayed. The clergyman, seeing it, smiled at me. But I thought, if he had felt such a load taken off from his soul as I did, and had been as sensible of his obligations to the Lord Jesus Christ as I was, he would not deem my prayers and praises all that superfluous. In other words, for those who really know what Christ did, there's no way not to smile. There's no way not to be glad. There's no way not to be grateful. There's no way not to worship. 
See, there are two kinds of religions in the world. The kind that's doing and the kind that's done. The doing kind says that if I do this or if I do that, then I'm worthy of acceptance. The done kind says I'm doing this and I'm doing that because I'm accepted. In the one, it's to clear a guilty conscience. In another, it's because I have a clear conscience. And so God says, you see, now it's open. Now if you receive the Lord Jesus, just come. And if your conscience on the way to coming says, you're not worthy to be here, just smile and say, you're right and you're wrong. You're right in that in myself I'm not. But you're wrong because I'm not simply coming in myself. I'm coming in Jesus who is. And he did. So here I am. And all this was announced by our Lord Jesus on that night that he was betrayed and he he took bread and after giving thanks he says this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup and again after giving thanks he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins do this in remembrance of me. And on this day, what we remember is that when he died, that curtain was torn. And he says, you can come in. Because the very one to which everything else pointed has come. The new order is here. The new reformation is here. The the, the new straightening has come. So enter into my presence. Why? Because your guilt is gone. Your guilt is gone. Your conscience is cleansed. And you say, but I don't feel that. This is when the psalmist speaks to his soul and says, oh, my soul, why are you so downcast? Just just rebuke your soul. Say, such a silly soul. My conscience is clear. My guilt is gone. I needn't suffer. Thus, the things that I do are now in service to the living God. He receives them and accepts them and says, thank you very much, that's very nice. Because your conscience is clear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, like our dear brother Simeon, Charles Simeon, we too, know that it was upon our Lord Jesus that our sins were pressed and it was upon him that your wrath was poured and he did it willingly and joyfully one man for another one person for another the very son of God for all his people and you accepted his sacrifice on our behalf and the proof is that now we enter into your very presence our guilt is gone our sin atoned for make that real in us continue to cause us to speak to our souls may your spirit affirm that and confirm that and jump within us to scream it if need be within our very spirits that in Christ Jesus our guilt is gone our sin is atoned for may we live in it 
And thus may all that we do be not to pacify, to satisfy a guilty conscience, but to do to serve you, to worship you joyfully, gratefully, honestly, sincerely. In love to you, this we pray. And we pray too that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that will affirm to us again, prove to us again, show to us again, convince us anew and afresh that the work of Christ is real and was sufficient and effective to save. Purify our conscience even as we come to this table. And this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and He invites to it all, frankly, who embrace what I've just said. Do you understand yourself to be a sinner in His sight without hope and except in His sovereign mercy? And he poured out that mercy upon our iniquities in Christ Jesus. And when Christ died, he did for your sins and mine, that our guilt might be gone, our sins atoned for. And we come to this table not as a dead work. We come to this table not out of a guilty conscience. We come to this table not out of fear, thinking, oh, if I don't, then then God will judge me. We don't come to this table out of pride thinking, well, of course I'm worthy to come to this table. We come to this table because of our Lord Jesus who has cleansed our conscience. And so we come joyfully and freely, honestly and sincerely because of what he's done. I'd invite these two sections to come down this aisle to my left, these two.